This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. So here's what we call primary production, new cells being formed, not from sunlight, but from chemical energy. Wow. Give me that on the moon and I'll get really <laughs> excited. <laughs> I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at KathySullivanExplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplorers.com. I'm joined today by one of my very favorite people of the deep, deep ocean that is, Dr. Cindy Vandover. Cindy's the Harvey W. Smith Professor of Marine Science and Conservation at Duke University. And she's a specialist in the ecology of chemosynthetic systems which is science speak for biological communities that are powered by chemicals rather than sunlight. There are many quite spectacular examples of these across the seafloor, in particular in the rift valleys, the down-faulted valleys that line the mountain range that runs along the bottom of our ocean. And the first of these was not discovered until all of 1979. So there's still pretty recent discoveries here on our very own planet. Cindy has made over 100 submersible dives to study these exotic systems and was pilot in command on 48 of those. She holds the distinction of being the first woman certified by the United States Navy as a deep submergence vehicle pilot, a sole distinction that I believe still holds, but we'll let her tell us much more about all of that in the course of our conversation. Cindy, welcome to the podcast. It's delightful to be talking with you. Thanks. It's great to be here. <laughs> so... You know, you and I have this shared experience. I got to share it once, actually, thanks to you, of getting into a little submersible called Alvin, which was a funny name given to it in honor of an oceanographer named Alan Vine. But I would bet most people listening to this podcast hear the word submersible, and it just goes right by in the sort of, uh, yeah, what does that mean? So what's the basic simple way to understand when you and I talk about Alvin or deep submersible? What is that? Good question. And it's a lovely thing to talk about. Probably everybody's heard of a submarine, right? So we think about the military submarines that can go down to, I think, still maybe some unspecified depth. It might be a secret. A little Alvin is a research submersible, submarine submersible. It's self-powered. So it, it goes down with, with uh, big batteries and is untethered. So it, you can sink down to the seafloor. You tend not to drive down. So they just put you over the side of the ship with a long tether. They unhook the tether and then uh, the submarine just releases its ballast. Alvin releases its um, air ballast and starts to sink. It's a research submersible in the sense that it is, well, carries two scientific observers and one pilot typically. 
its business has mostly, it's been designed for working on the seabed, primarily on the seabed. It's now been modified a little bit to work in the water column and explore what's in the water column, which is still, well, like the seabed, one of the least known areas, volumes on our planet. So the water column, meaning the, the zone between the top and the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, which can be quite deep, as yeah. you well know. <laughs> Yeah. So the irony is, that I don't know what it was like on your very deep dive to the Marianas Trench, but with Alvin, you might remember, we go down with the lights off. Um, and so you're just descending and often it's a time to catch up with the pilot and tell him what your science plan is for the dive or with the other observer and share some of the science or listen to music, take a nap. Um, sometimes on the surface vessel, the, the work days are very long and they go seven days a week. So we go without the lights and, uh, and you miss all that stuff in the water column. It takes a special design and purpose to get into the water column viewing. Well, plus, if your focus is on either the geology or the creatures living on the seabed, you want to save all your electricity for putting lights on the bottom and, and driving around on the bottom. The other way I often explain submarine versus submersible is a, a submarine is a cigar-shaped vehicle mm -hmm. because it's meant to go pretty long distances horizontally in the water. Mm -hmm. And submersibles are usually some shape roughly like a lozenge or a teardrop. They're designed to go up and down like an elevator, descend like an elevator, you noodle around on the bottom. Submersibles are really pinpoint devices, right? Because you can only move around about a knot, a little more, maybe a mile and a half an hour. Right. So yeah. you're not going down to survey some big area, you're kind of zooming into someplace you already kind of know needs to be looked at more closely. You're doing, you're doing a walk on the seafloor, basically. Yeah. 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 Good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, Alvin is, uh, you know, I described her as looking like a fat little pig. She's, she's got white superstructure and um, where the people are is a, is a sphere because that's best for pressure. Right. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff that needs to go around it. And that gives her, you know, with that more lozenge shape, like you say, or, and the tapered look, but she's kind of a stubby little, little thing. Very uh, endearing. <laughs> yeah. Endearing, but she does have a bit of an ungainly look to her. Yeah, I think yeah. it's fair to say that. <laughs> Not hydrodynamic. No, no, no. And and the limiting factor submersible that I went in with Victor Pascovo in last year to the Marianas Trench is it's really like a fat briefcase. It's actually square, you <laughs> oh, face on and, and, you know, vertically a little bit streamlined. So she, the elevator ride is fairly fast and smooth mm -hmm. up and down to the Marianas Trench. It was about four hours, four hours getting back from shallower than that in Alvin because she's, she's chunkier. She's yeah, fatter. She's got a slow rise and sink rate. So how did you get into the Alvin work? It was started in your graduate school time, didn't it? Yes, although my interest in the submarine went way, way back when I was a kid in a, on a vacation. I had a book about oceanography with a picture of the Alvin team. This had to be in the late 60s, so soon after Alvin had been built. And I thought, oh, wow. And it was, of course, space time, right? <laughs> and I thought, wow, you know, astronaut, sure, that'd be fine. But going into the bottom of the ocean, for me, somebody who grew up on the coast, curious about all the life, animals, the submarine seemed like the place to be. And I, I thought of those pilots in the submarine, like uh, the pilots, like astronauts, right? So I had dreamt of the submersible and, and, and just even diving in it and I really never expected to be a pilot. Then college, I thought about, started thinking about the deep ocean and ecology in the deep sea. And then I was looking for graduate school and finally got into the oceanographic, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, which is the home 
for Alvin. And I started going out to sea with Alvin. This is when hot springs, like you say, were first discovered. So I was on some of the early biology cruises to the hot springs on the seafloor, saw the pilots working, thought, what a great team. I, you know, I'd love to be part of that team and how extraordinary to, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great to understand how to work that submarine and understand what is down there? Because, you know, if you're studying a habitat as an ecologist, you want to be in that place and you look around. I looked around and the people who were seeing most of the place were the pilots, not the scientists, because they right. dive every day. I remember you telling me the story once, not only do they dive every day, but Alvin has just three small viewports. One faces straight forward. That's where the pilot would be to see what they're doing. And then one sort of angled off to the left and to the right where the science observers like you or I would be. And you also realize the guy in this sub that has the best and most consistent <laughs> view is the is the pilot. You know, yeah. I'm seeing the right half or the left half. They're seeing everything. <laughs> I want that window. <laughs> yeah. Happily, that has changed because Alvin has been rebuilt over time. It's basically a new Alvin with, this, with the same name. Uh, I think about 2013 was the big change from instead of a single pilot's viewport, there are now three viewports forward looking in addition to the two side ones. So now the scientists do get to see the good <laughs> stuff for a long time. That was a big challenge. <laughs> I, I hope they were called the Cindy Vandover windows. No. <laughs> no, but I think I was the one who said, why don't we put more windows in this thing? Yeah, I'll bet you were. So back me up a little bit. I, I think you've just disproven one of my favorite theories, joking theories, of course, which is that there are exactly zero four-year-old girls on the planet that walk around saying, I want to be a sub-pilot when I grow up. How, how old were you when you had that Alvin book? I bet, uh, so 60, so 15, early teens. Okay. Yeah. If you roll the tape further back, you know, you, how did you get to that point? Besides beachcombing, I guess, what else set that, that course in you about the deep sea and about not just wanting a vacation home next to it, but wanting to go, <laughs> go deeper? pun not intended and understand it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's easy. You know, I did grow up on the uh, close to the shore. We were about five miles from the, the beach in a little town in New Jersey. Exit 105 on the Garden State Parkway, a little town called Eatontown. And it's right next door pretty much to Asbury Park, which is where Bruce Springsteen grew up. Um, so it kind of gives you a sense of the uh, people there, maybe. And we would go to the beach in the summertime and I would see horseshoe crabs on the beach and lady crabs. And I was fascinated by these horseshoe crabs and all the sea stars, things that I was used to dogs and cats and birds, but the marine life is very different from the terrestrial life. I was fascinated by how they worked. So horseshoe crabs, you know, those are those, the big crabs, they often in, in off New Jersey and in, in large numbers, just Got they look prehistoric, right? That big armored head and then the long tail. Yep. Yeah. The door knocker on my front door is actually a brass horseshoe crab. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so, so that was the that was my inspiration for thinking about odd animals. And then, you know, when you but sit it, on the it, beach, but even then, it was how they work that fascinates me. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But you sit on the beach, and I only thought about I literally only thought about the surface of the water, as in waves, and I thought about the sand and the beach water, you know, the sea interacting. But it, I think when I was a kid, I just had no concept of everything else below the ocean. And it was in college at some point where that just started to kick in where, you know, I knew that it was cold and dark and it's supposed to be really constant uh, temperatures and, you know, there wasn't life down there or not much life, but I knew there was some life. And so I started thinking about, well, how do these animals 
live? How do they, how do they find their food? How do they find their mates? I'd been working in shallow water and new oysters, you know, when, the, when it gets warm, the oysters all spawn at once. What chemical or temperature or light cue do the deep sea animals use? Cause they don't have a light cue or a temperature cue. So those things really got me thinking about the deep sea and recognize that there is a place called the deep sea. Had you gone to college knowing you were going to major in ocean sciences? Or did you wander around and explore a bit as you figured out a major? You know, when I was in high school, I first I took a marine biology class. I was really lucky in New Jersey. Some of my freshman year, I took marine biology, which we went all out in the field all over the place. And then they had an advanced marine biology, which was research. In high so school? I was, yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I tried to get into it in eighth grade, but they wouldn't let me do it. I had to wait till I was in high school. But that had a huge impact on me. I worked at a shellfish research lab in New Jersey that was part of Rutgers. And I met the professor who ran that lab, Doc Haskins. I was, I, I loved the research. I did a little experiment where we took clams, regular cohogs, the clams, clam chowder, put them in trays with uh, still water and inoculated the water with bacteria that were benign that don't hurt anything. And then, then we, it was just a funny thing. We had to collect the fecal samples, the poop from these clams as it came out <laughs> the siphons and assay it for how many bacteria were there. And we looked at how long it took for the clams to depurate. So anyway, Wait, you know, does that mean to clear out all the water or for the clams? So the, to they're clear themselves the of the bacteria. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So their guts no longer had the bacteria in them. Right. And so I was thinking about if you were going to clean up your clams, you could take them from some polluted place, put them into some fresh, clean water. Okay. How long would it take for them to clean their guts out? Pump themselves out. Yeah. Are, yeah. are they not all, don't they help clean out the bacteria in the water as well as they do that? You know, I don't know the answer to that, whether the bacteria that came out in the poop was still living. living. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, there's, of course, there's a, now we all know about microbiomes and there always is a microbiome that's living, but the specific ones we inoculate with, not sure. Wait, yeah. I do know because the assay, boy, you're making my brain go back decades. <laughs> the bacteria, we, the way we assayed it, the way we measured whether the bacteria were finished was by an assay on auger. So we put them on a nutrient substrate. Okay. And then if they grew up, you then know, we, we just watched. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we watched the, that growth disappear. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me more about that high school experience. I, I had a, I had a very memorable high school experience, a little bit like that, but it was with respect to foreign languages and what really made the huge difference for me was this moment where a teacher I really adored and respected was treating me like a near peer and giving mm. me some authority in the classroom. And that was, that like opened my mind to very vague, but this sense of what, you know, being the authoritative person, being knowing something and being able to give it, it just, it felt so good. Was that part of what hooked you into this in high school? Absolutely. It's, it's, you know, it's a, a lot about the people, right? So this guy, the research professor from Rutgers was influential, but in, in just in high school itself, the marine biology was taught by Mr. Musgrave. And, you know, I got to know him because we were together in the summer, you know, we, there were, I think there were about a dozen of us at most in the class. And then I took his biology class and I was, became a, you know, a lab rat taker, carer of. Um, so I was, you know, the classic nerdy, biology groupie and, and hung out after school in the biology labs, feeding the cockroaches. I mean, it's just <laughs> fun stuff. So that, that's not the recipe for the archetypal teenage year, you know, super high school social life. <laughs> 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 you 
nor, nor, nor was mine, it should be added. <laughs> Social life in high school. Yeah, that was an interesting, interesting concept. <laughs> Do we need to go there? <laughs> I recall my my perception of social life in high school was pretty simple. It was, there's no way this is where I'm hanging out for the rest of my life. So yeah. I'm going somewhere else. My best friend growing up was that she went to a private school, but we lived across the street from each other. So we're still in contact and, and friends, but everybody else is kind of, I, I catch up with some of the guys. We had, I mean, a foreign language experience. We had a great Russian class, a Russian teacher and uh, Mr. Calabrese, and, and there were small group of us who took Russian and we, we all bonded. And so there's some contact among us still, but it was, um, you know, the high school flirty things was not my, my thing. I didn't really date a whole lot. I had much more fun in college. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I think we both did. (laughs) So where, where did you go to college? Definitely Rutgers. I only applied to Rutgers. Was that state school and affordability or also that you knew the biology? Both. Yeah. So it was the state university of New Jersey. And I, and because I knew the biology professor, it was also interesting. I had, it's a story that I don't know if this happens nowadays, but in high school, I had a guidance counselor who told me I was not college material and that I should go get married. Fire that counselor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I almost thought that was an apocryphal story in my mind. And then I happened to find a a correspondence where with one of my high school friends and it's like, no, it was really did happen. But uh, I'm kind of the person who said, if someone tells me I shouldn't do something, that's when I'll do it. Like I had a elementary school teacher who was trying to teach us French. And as we were going into high school, he said, oh, none of you should take Russian because you can't do French. It's like, okay, I'm taking Russian. It's like, you're kick, you're not college material. Okay, I'm going to college then. <laughs> story that's been a prevailing story in my progress as a as a young person. But surely you were thinking about college before that counselor slapped you in the face with that verdict. Yes, because of my experience at that little oyster research lab, I started to understand a little bit of what college was about. But my yeah. parents were not college yeah. graduates. Uh, my dad, I don't think, graduated from high school. But education was important to them. In fact, my father was on the board of education for our town. Wow. wow. So off you go to Rutgers. And did you start to pretty quickly see a straight line from undergrad to graduate? <laughs> no, I was a college dropout back when college dropout was not a was not a big thing. I did after my out? freshman year. The sophomore it's a, and the reason is strange. I entered as the first class of co-eds to Rutgers College which was really fun because it was a you know a small number of women in a, amongst a large number of guys, which is heaven. But I entered through the College of the Ag School, which became the College of, I don't know, Environmental Science and Agriculture. The second year I was there, my sophomore year, which meant I had to move my campus. I, all my courses were supposed to be with a women's college. So I went to a couple of my classes the first week and I, I could not stand it. I went to a biology class and it was just not not the same as what I was used to with the guys. It was just, it had a feel that I just wasn't happy in. So I quit, <laughs> I dropped out. That was an all female it was, class. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't like it, but I stayed on campus. I was a squatter in, a, in one of the apartments of one of, of some students. So I stayed on campus and when it came to be exam time, I felt left out because everybody was studying. So I started, I took two courses by exam. I just took the exam and passed the course and got credit. Yeah, I was kind of an oddball student. 
And then what roped you back in? I got had a chance to go to Woods. I always thought Woods Hole was Mecca for me and, and my interests. I mean, once I was in college, um, and I had a chance to go to Woods Hole to the new ecosystem center that was there. So I spent first a semester there and then a year. They had two or no, a January course and then a year as a fellowship student. So I fell in love with Woods Hole, went back, finished up at Rutgers. I kind of took a year off to go to Woods Hole and came back and finished. That was that was my Rutgers experience. It was all the time I was working at the Oyster Research Lab with that same professor. So I, I did a lot of a lot of work in the field, again, a lab where there were no women until I came along, yeah. which was fun. I enjoyed, I like, I like being the only woman around. <laughs> <laughs> but did you ever, you know, the standard question, did you ever get garbage and BS? And, you know, I mean, one of my first research cruises with Woods Hole back in 74, the bosun on the ship, actually, the bosun's the guy that runs the deck, basically. Mm. Anyone who's hauling things with cranes and winches, the bosun's directing them. And he was a curmudgeonly old salt of a guy, big burly arms, tattoos back in the day before everyone had tattoos. He actually painted a red line across the stern of the ship and announced to me and Margaret Linen mm. and Tanya Atwater that no woman goes after that red line on his deck. Ah, of course, yeah. we just basically ignored because we were there to do scientific work that required us to go behind the red line. And so good for you. But did you have- <laughs> I probably would have stayed behind the red line. I don't know. <laughs> In college. No, I had no experience that was bad. I, everything that I was aware of was all good. I, I just loved the research and the world I was in found it really supportive. I think, you know, Doc Haskin had uh, four daughters, so maybe that's part of, why he was a particularly good mentor. And the, and the graduate students that I worked with were, they were great, still friends with him. Yeah, I, I would say I never had any sort of adverse experience or even you know skeptical why are you here from fellow students. Uh, and just once or twice, like that boson yeah. and you know, one yeah. professor who was Bo- renowned. Bosons are notoriously, they can be tough and they can also be just teddy bears at the same time. It's pretty, pretty interesting yeah. characters. Just- this guy turned out to be quite a, a friendly teddy bear by the yeah, end of the cruise. Yeah. 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 Um, so you applied s- straight out of Rutgers to go, go to Woods Hole as a grad student. Was that your hope? Yes. And I got rejected. <laughs> and so- first time. That was my first time. So I, this Doc Haskin had knew some people down here in North Carolina, where I am based now and uh, at the University of North Carolina in Moorhead City, which is the town next door, Marine Lab. So I went there and worked for a little bit. That was a that was a guy who was um, old fashioned, let's say, is a polite way to put it. And the guys would be allowed to go out in the field. It was a fish biologist, and the women stayed behind and did the desk work. Well, and a that, common pattern in the old yeah, days. Yeah, it was. Yeah, and I left that after three months and came over here to where I am now at Duke um, and worked as a technician for a year or so. And then uh, money ran out, so I got a student to drive my car with me up to Maine and started backpacking down the coast of Maine. I was going to do the whole Appalachian Trail, but they wouldn't let my dog in to Mount Katahdin uh, to hike. Ah, yeah. uh, well, and so? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, got as far as Bar Harbor, met up with a couple of guys. We decided it was getting cold. We'd hitchhike down to Florida. I hung out on the beach in Florida on the West Coast for a while, then went over to the Smithsonian. They have a field station there in Fort Pierce and asked me, do you need anybody to work? And the scientist asked me what skills I had. I said, oh, I can translate Russian, among the other things that I put forward. 
and he needed somebody to translate a book about copepods, little, little tiny crustaceans. So he hired me and I started doing that, started working on larval biology. And you applied again to Woods Hole. Listeners should know the story comes yeah, out yeah, yeah, that yeah. you have a PhD from the MIT Woods Hole <laughs> Joint Program, but it was because you you were the dog that would not let go of the bone. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I applied again and, and was rejected. It's the only place I applied um, was rejected again. I, you know, I forget, sometimes I forget the sequence. I'm pretty sure I applied three times, maybe four, but obviously in the end I got in. But they were, they wanted, I, I mean, have you talked about math with your, with your speakers in this, in this podcast series? No, but start talking about math. <laughs> I had, or maybe the reason my guidance counselor didn't think I was college material was I had, I struggled with math. It goes back to grade school, even where I had a, I had a teacher who would put us, we'd take a test and she would seat us in order of our test grades. Oh my gosh. So it was great if you got the 100% and really bad if you got the 30%. And I was down there in the 30%. So it was so humiliating. I hated math. So I never did well in math in high school and college. I think I got a D in calculus in college my freshman year. And that was it. I was all the math I was going to take was the requirement. So Woods Hole MIT didn't want me without my math skills. Yeah, MIT having the engineering bent that it does, yes. obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting arrangement because, and you will correct me if I have this wrong, and I don't know how this originated, but MIT is the degree granting part of that partnership. And Woods Hole is the partner that brings all the access to the ocean. And for MIT, they, they're interested both in engineering and technology for the deep sea, like robotics and things like that. Mm -hmm. But however the deal got put together, MIT agreed, you know, it's broad oceanography from technology to biology to geology, the whole right. shoot and match. Yeah. But they yeah. still kind of, you know, they're still MIT and math, you know, the M in that is Massachusetts, not math, but sometimes you wouldn't know that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, the astronaut corps, I'm an oddball. NASA was so short of astronauts when our class applied, they hadn't chosen anyone in almost a decade. You get 9,000 applications and some small number get in on their first try. That's unusual. That's not the norm for astronaut selection. I know one colleague tried 10 times. I know someone who tried 16 times. But you know, I kind of get that for astronaut. I've always wondered what had kept you going, trying again and again until you got in. Was it really still Alvin pulling you along that whole time? And the deep sea, yes. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, now it's a little bit easier to find places where you could do science, do PhD, or master's or PhD studies in deep sea science. But at the time it was, you know, it was the only places I knew of were Scripps and Woods Hole and Woods Hole had Alvin. And so it was the access that I felt Woods Hole would give me more access to the deep sea than, than Scripps would. I was determined. <laughs> yeah, clearly. And good on you. <laughs> Let's go back into the deep sea. And I would love to have you, Put us on your shoulder as you arrive on the bottom in a mid-ocean rift valley and give us that sense as, as a pilot. You know, what are you seeing? What are you thinking about? What's you can only see about 30 feet, right? With the little however much light you brought down with you is all the more mm. light there is. So I imagine walking into a 12,000 square foot mansion. The only thing you know about it is the outside shape is a rectangle and it's jet black dark. And someone hands you two candles <laughs> and says, 
go explore this place. I mean, you wouldn't know where walls are. You wouldn't know where doors are. You wouldn't know when you're about to trip over a a chair. Give us a sense of that experience of walking on the seafloor as a pilot in Alvin. Yeah. So um, the first thing to say, and this goes back to training, right, is, is it's the safety so safety first, right? So the first thing you think about when you land on the seafloor or are making your bottom approach as a, as a pilot is that you're not going to crash and that you're not going to get snagged, snagged in anything. You know, most of the, most of the seafloor is devoid of, of things you can get snagged on. But the, around the mid-ocean ridges, there are caves, submarine, submarine caves um, that you, you might find yourself too close to, or in my case, in the days I was a pilot, was we worked at the black smokers, the high temperature black smokers. They are hot enough to melt the viewports of Alvin. And so you want to make sure you're not around them. So safety first. The smokers are, they're sort of like, imagine a Yellowstone guy, yeah. but black and coming out at the bottom of, and not doesn't come out as fast as Old Faithful does, but it's basically a geyser coming out of the seafloor. Yep, continuous flow of odd chemistry fluids coming out of the seafloor, hot as the Dickens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It will melt the viewport if you land you know, set yeah. on it. Yeah, okay. yeah. And Alvin at the time did have a bottom viewport, which is interesting. Ah, they got rid of that. But anyway, you do the, often. Usually, there was very little to worry about. You kind of you knew your terrain. A lot of situational awareness, right? You have lots of sensors that tell you what what's going on and what you're what you're gonna see. How do you control how fast you're settling to the bottom? Uh, what the standard procedure is, as you approach the bottom, 100 meters above the bottom, at least when I was pilot, you stop the descent with thrusters and, or you start pumping water out so that you become neutrally buoyant. Okay. And then the last 100 meters, you drive down. Oh, okay. So you have control. You're, you're driving down. So you, okay. you, I have heard apocryphal stories of pilots who were distracted by something and they crashed onto the seabed, which is not a good thing. Yeah. Um, but it does, that's pretty rare. You have to really not be thinking. Yeah. So you get out and you see the seafloor, the lights, you know, it kind of comes in out of the gloom and it's kind of a contest. Who's going to see it first? Because the scientists, you get the scientists looking out their viewports to see if the bottom's in sight. Uh, and then the bottom comes in sight. And maybe the most remarkable thing is that the water is clear. It's like being in a really nice fish tank. Absolutely crystal clear. And, and I, I guess you, you've experienced that, yeah, right? But it it's, is, it's gin clear water. And somehow yeah, you yeah. realize that you had not thought it would be that way. Yeah. You think of it as dark and murky, right? Those yeah. are the, the adjectives we use for the, for the deep sea, but crystal clear. And so you can see the rock formations and the mid-ocean ridge rocks. Well, you're on a mountain range. It's glorious kind of geological formations, Right. All so you volcanic the, like Iceland. Yeah. So you have lava flows that come in all different kinds of forms. There's names for each kind. So there's sheet flows that are very flat and pillows that are really astoundingly sometimes very big and look like this toothpaste squeezed out of a tube. And then there, like I said, there can be caverns and drain back features that are pretty cool to look at where the, I guess the lava had come up. You would know this better. The lava comes up and it's hot and it actually steams the water underneath the chill front at the top that faces that it, it's next to the uh, seawater. And so, and then it drops back, the gas goes away and you, you get this collapsed roof. Uh, it's just remarkable, the structures, pillars and things. And then if you're working on the mid-ocean ridge and, and aiming for a, a hot spring, often it's the biology that you see for syllabi enriched biology. So this means things like 
all of a sudden the crabs, a certain kind of crab becomes more and more abundant. So there's crab gradients as you get closer to the vent site. There might be more anemones that, that show up, the little flower-like animals. And so you work your way up to the, the vent site and that will just blow your mind. Right. So you've, you've, which you went to the nine north vents right on the yeah, East Pacific, right? Went out with you on the, that last cruise of the A2, the Woods Hole vessel Atlantis 2, and did get a dive onto nine north. I think I got the only dive of that cruise because that was when the ship's, gen- one of the ship's generators failed. Oh, wow. And right. Pick up, <laughs> pick up sticks and go back into port yeah. right after my dive. Uh, so you didn't dive on a vent? You didn't see the I vents? Did. Oh, you didn't. So uh, what did you think? You know, what I remember most distinctly are those kind of, spectacular volcanic landforms yeah, that you were yeah. talking about. We must have seen smokers, but yeah. uh, the pilot on that dive actually let me drive the sub a little bit. And so of what's really burned into my memory is what I was seeing as I you know, peered into the gloom. I mean, it, it felt like maneuvering by Braille because you're just peering <laughs> at the edge of the light yeah, wall trying yeah. to make your way forward. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I've I've commented before about this, that because you're someplace nobody's ever been before often, it's always a sense that the next discovery is just beyond that pool of light. And it's it's just it just keeps you moving. It's really a fascinating feeling to know you're someplace where 99.999% of the time now you don't discover something new, but you just never know what's going to be around that corner. And there's I mean, you've, you've looked at a map of where you're going before you dive, but it's a map that has, again, it would be like having a map of your neighborhood that only showed you the rectangle that was each house that doesn't right. show you the details inside the house or the, you know, where are the mailboxes and where are trees planted? So you're, you're there with a very broad sense of where you are, but each feature, I, I, you know, I, we came up near a wall at one point and I remember thinking, you know, what do I do now? Is this you know, <laughs> 10 feet to the left, the wall ends and I could go around it. Well, I don't know. It could go for miles. Right. Or yeah. if I rise up five feet, I can go over it. Or it might be a thousand feet high. You, you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We're, we're getting better at making, making maps, higher resolution. So we're, but it's still the textures of things that are, are just amazing. It's, it is, it is not a homogeneous environment in any sense of the word, not, not on these mid-ocean ridges. So, I want to come back to talking more about be- the being there versus getting data from there. Mm. Uh, and maybe let's do that first. And then I'd like to hear from you on some of the biology. So there is commonly in both the ocean arena and the space arena, a tension, if not a debate, if not an outright fight between those who say, why on earth are we sending people into these hazardous environments and it's expensive and they can only move around a little bit. And if you just let me use this robot, whether it's on a tether or not, or it's a Mars lander or an orbiter, I get a whole lot more data for a lot less money, a whole lot faster. And one of their arguments often will be, you know, the the folks in the van on the surface ship that are controlling that robot at the end of the tether, they are like they are, they feel like they are on the seafloor. It's, it's just as good. The people at JPL that are flying ingenuity right now and driving perseverance. They are Martians, you know, they are there. So why are we doing this, putting humans into this mm-hmm. environment? I'm curious what your experience has been, you know, as a scientist, I know you've worked with ROV data in a number of your experiments as well as gone there. Does that make a difference in terms of your scientific comprehension and capability or not? I mean, it's an evolution in, in our 
in thinking as you as you progress through a career as I have, like from the submarine, using mostly the submarine to being a, I was, because I was Woods Hole and like the engineering, not, I am not an engineer, but I really enjoy the technology development. And I love being a first user or one of the first users of the new technologies. So that drove me to using the, both the untethered remotely operated vehicles and the autonomous underwater vehicles. Um, in fact, I was part of a little, sort of a club where we said, well, what we need is an autonomous underwater vehicle that can, we had specs for it, you know, it's got a map, the seafloor in high resolution, and it was also going to take images at very high resolution so that Cindy, the biologist, you know, could, could, see, could see the biology because <laughs> it had been mostly focused on mapping. And that kind of ended up being the aid, the autonomous benthic explorer out of Woods Hole. Uh, and so I really enjoyed using that. But But to get back to your question about why I've been, it's not a fight, it's a discussion, it's, but there are strong opinions. I have with a, almost, it's not quite a hundred dives under my belt in the submarine. I guess if you count the Russian subs, it is a hundred. I prefer using the ROVs for the really? reasons you just said, because you get the data together. I, well, actually the main reason I prefer the ROVs is it's democratic. Everybody on the ship, everybody now in the world, if you're doing telepresence science, can see what's going on and have input. With Alvin, the two scientists go down the submarine with a pilot. You hear very little during the day while they're doing their ex explorations on the seafloor of what they've done and what they've accomplished, what they've discovered. Discoveries often are, back in the day, and they were, were held very tight, and they'd come up and they might even be a little coy about a discovery because they wanted to hold it in. This was all before social media. They want to publish that research paper. Yeah, yeah. And, and, they, and there was some status of being the person in the know, right? With an ROV, you get none of that because <laughs> everybody can be there. I, I, I like that. I'm, I think that is my main reason. The data is, collection is great, it's, but it's, it's the sharing the experience and the knowledge and the expertise so that you can have different people come into the room and help you think about what, what to do next. It's also a little bit more thoughtful. The ROV works a little more slowly. It moves a little more slowly than Alvin. And so you have more time to make decisions and you, you have the luxury, a little bit more luxury of time because you're often on the seabed for 24, 48 hours at a time. Whereas with Alvin, you get your five hours on the bottom and you got to go up. So you got to get your work done, right? You yeah. can't just stop to think, well, what should I do next? And you can't have a discussion about it and, and kind of synthesize what you've just seen. But then- I've taken early career scientists out for a chief scientist training expedition, and they were just adamant that we had to have submarines and human-occupied vehicles because of the inspiration and also the, the 3D sensibility that I can take, because I've been in the submarine so much, I think I can take what I see in 2D and just immediately know what scales things are. But if you haven't done that, it's yeah. like, oh my God, I had no idea it was like this. People have done only ROV work. And so being there walking the seafloor yourself rather than you know, looking at the video is, does make a difference. And so you now can bring that richer comprehension, that experiential comprehension to the remote and 2D work. I like to think so. Yeah, I, th yeah. I, think, I think there's some bit of that. I don't, I've never seen it demonstrated scientifically that that's going on or don't know that, but yeah. Uh, I always become metaphorical when I'm discussing this point with someone and say, look, if it's really, you know, everything robotic is perfectly fine. That's great. 
I'll go to Rome. I'll take all the pictures you need. Yeah. And I'll send back a book to you that will give you a full and complete understanding of what a vacation in Rome is. You never get a taker on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've done the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 wait. <laughs> I need to smell that food and have that cappuccino. <laughs> Walk that, get that gelato. So I haven't asked you yet about your all-time favorite subjects, which are the critters of the deep sea. I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear you talk about your the first time you got to dive and see some of those spectacular yeah. communities. I was I was really lucky. My first dive was in 1985. And it was at a place called Rose Garden, which is, you know, you might not think we can have historical sites on the seafloor, but we do. And Rose Garden is historical in that it was the, one of the first sites, first hydrothermal vent sites. And the, the first site where we found the giant tube worms. Where is it in the world? So Rose Garden is a hot spring on the Galapagos Spreading Center, which is north of the Galapagos Islands at about, mm, I forget, 2,000, 2,500 meter water depth. Um, out of the side of land. Yeah, my first dive, we went down to the seafloor and back then Alvin had a hard time finding things. The navigation systems were pretty pretty slim, not marginal. <laughs> you were lucky if you got to the place you wanted to go in, in your five hours on the bottom. Anyway, we landed right on Rose Garden and Rose Garden is where the tube worms were first discovered. So giant tube worms are these gorgeous animals. They're well, they can be as tall as I am, so over five feet, the wow. adults. They are about an inch in diameter, inch and a half in diameter in the adult form. These are the strange animals without a digestive system, without a mouth, without an anus. They have this gorgeous red plume, kind of frilly lam lamelli, different layers of tissue. It's a giant white broomstick with a red top. Yeah, I mean, yeah. About the yeah. size of a broomstick. And they grow in clusters, yeah. so they look like a bouquet. So they look oh, wow. very large clusters. So they're they're really beautiful things against set against a black glassy basalt substratum in this you know gin clear water, just extraordinary. And the warm water is shimmering up through them, so they live at the interface of the cold seawater and the warm water coming up from from really inside cool. the earth. Or so they're, ocean ba crust. they're bathing in the hot spring water, yes. basically. But now, mind you, hot spring, they don't, actually don't live in very warm water. It's it's quite quite cool. It's warmer than ambient deep sea, which is about just above freezing, but they're not that much above it. But we call them hot springs. So, and it's kind of seeping out where the worms are. It's yeah, not one exactly. of these jets that's coming out. Yes. Yeah. yeah, the jets are too hot for anything to live in. These guys live in that nice benign area where they get the good chemistry from the fluids and, and then the oxygen from the seawater, surrounding seawater. So how do they live? What is their... <laughs> they are exquisite. If you wanted to imagine the most remarkable animal in the universe, <laughs> these guys have to be contenders. They have this remarkable need for oxygen. So they, they take in a lot of oxygen. They have an unusual need for sulfide. Sulfide is coming out of the vent fluid. It's toxic to most organisms, toxic to me and you, because it, it poisons our, our ATP, our energy, our cellular metabolism, poisons our cellular metabolism. But the tube worms live and take up this, this sulfide without getting poisoned. They have bacteria inside their bodies, millions, billions of bacteria inside special sacs in their body. So the tube worm plume that's bright red, it's red because of hemoglobin. The hemoglobin is picking up the oxygen 
That's red blood cells, right? That's what makes our blood red. Yep. Well, they don't have it in cells. They have just the pigment. Just the pigment. Okay. Yep. So the hemoglobin binds with the oxygen. It also binds with sulfide, which is truly remarkable. And as soon as it binds with the sulfide, it renders the sulfide non-toxic. The bound sulfide is benign. So the oxygen gets moved down to the bacteria. So does the sulfide. And there's lots of little capillaries and things around those bacteria. So they're very close to that supply of oxygen and sulfide. The other thing that comes into the animal is carbon dioxide. Normally animals respire carbon dioxide. Two worms take up carbon dioxide. From the seawater. From the seawater and from the vent water too. Okay. Um, And so that's that mixture of carbon dioxide, oxygen, and sulfide that the bacteria use to make new cells. So that's where you mentioned chemosynthesis right at the top of this, this conversation. That's the chemical chemosynthesis in contrast to photosynthesis. So here's what we call primary production, new cells being formed, not from sunlight, but from chemical energy. Wow. Give me that on the moon and I'll get really <laughs> excited. <laughs> so does this animal produce any waste product? You said it has no anus. There's always some byproduct or waste of a yeah. metabolic process. Yeah, so it's getting rid of dissolved compounds. So the sulfide ultimately is detoxified by the bacteria, turn it into sulfate. And so the dissolved sulfate is released into the water column. It does respire CO2, so CO2 is released. The bacteria are consumed by the tube worm itself, so that's how they grow. Ultimately, ah. when they die, you know, they'll, they'll get decomposed, but they don't, they don't poop. They can't. <laughs> <laughs> I believe there's several different, I mean, there are these very large tube worms, and there are smaller versions mm-hmm. of them. Are they all of, and I'm not a taxonomist, are they all of the same family? All these words mean things, yeah. genetics that I'm probably mangling. But how related are they uh, from one hot spring to another thousands of miles apart from the big guys to the skinny guys? Because there's others that are like the size of a pencil. Yeah. yeah. So you can have different species living together, different species of tube worms living in the same place. Uh, and they're somehow dividing the environmental materials up. One has a lesser demand for sulfide or more demand. For, so they pick their particular parts of the habitat. But you're right, it it is a mistake to think that everything is the same everywhere in the ocean, including at at these hydrothermal vents. You look on the vents on the East Pacific rise where these giant tube worms are, and then you go over to the Western Pacific and look at the tube worms there, totally different, certainly different genus in the same family. So there's these sebaglinid polychaete worms that are tube worms that are found around the world, but, but different ones. So there is a biogeography, just like you can travel up and down the east coast of the United States and you have you have pine forests up in the in New England and then you hit the hardwoods and then you go down to tropical environments. We have those same kinds of things, not driven by temperature driven so by much temperature, as yeah. but but the geographic basin and things that isolate populations in different basins. The other amazing thing to me about every image I've seen and, and the glimpses I probably had from Alba myself about these vent communities is with the exception of the gorgeous red cap on these tube worms, essentially every other critter you see down there, clams, crabs, a few other kinds of worms, they're all white or translucent. Yeah, there are a lot of white animals down there. So yeah, so if you don't have light, color is used as as a way to get rid of, you know, there, there's some some things that are pigmented and the color is a nice way to just get rid of the get rid of that pigment, stow it somewhere. So there are shrimp that are red down there, not so much at the vents, but there are red shrimp down on the seafloor. Then I think that's just a way to put those carotenoids into the exoskeleton. 
the muscles have a, a, a peria, a layer of shell on the outside, a protein layer that's yellow. But otherwise, you know, white color, color is not a sick device, let's say. So don't spend energy on making color. Exactly. Is that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, nobody's looking at you. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there, there is bioluminescence. You don't, you don't need your there, makeup. But, yeah. Right. <laughs> But you found, you studied a certain, if I remember right, it was a shrimp that you discovered does have an interesting optical or light organ on it. So there is there is some signaling amongst animals, even in this dark, deep environment. Well, there's, there's sensing for sure. So we don't know if there's signaling so much as sensing in that particular case. But yeah, can I tell a shrimp story? Oh, yeah. <laughs> These shrimp are wonderful. They swarm like, well, geochemists described them as swarming like maggots on a hunk of rotten meat. <laughs> Which, you know, maybe bees. Not a very a, flattering description. Yeah. <laughs> bees on us, bees in a hive maybe would be better, more apt. But it's not a social swarming. It's probably a feeding swarming. They're there, because they're aggregated to feed. And they were discovered in 1986 when vents were first discovered on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge by Peter Rona and, and his colleagues. That was when I was starting graduate school. So they gave me those shrimp to look at to understand how are they making a life at these Black smoke on black smoker chimneys on the sulfide minerals that the form as the smoke comes out of the seafloor, and so I did all my feeding biology work on that. But as I was doing that, they it was clear from the images they had this really interesting transparent carapace or shell on their backs, and there was a funny organ. And I thought somebody when I do my PhD defense, somebody's going to ask me what that is. <laughs> so I tried I dissected it out and. I did classic, classic Cindy. It's like, well, it looks like an eye to me. It had it looked like optic nerves going to what I took to be the brain of the shrimp. And I said, well, those must be eyes. And I started talking to people about it. And they said, well, you, you, gotta, you can't just say they're eyes. You have to prove that they're eyes. And so we ended up doing a bunch of assays for the pigments, rhodopsin pigments like we have in our eyes. Um, they do have rhodopsin, a very high amount of rhodopsin in, their, in these organs. Uh, and they have structure, a, a structure, the microscopic structure reminiscent of compound eyes of like insects. Um, and so altogether, the evidence pretty much is clear that they're a derived, highly modified eye. On the, On back, the back of the shrimp. shrimp. So they lack eye stalks and black beady little <laughs> eyes of regular shrimp. No, but they are like your mother who always had eyes in the back of her head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah, and so then the next good. question was, well, what are they looking at? And there, like I said, there is bioluminescence on the seafloor, but an ordinary shrimp's eye should be able to detect, detect that. So why would these guys pull this eye into their care, into their body and make it really big and have a huge amount of reduction? So we deduce that they were looking at some, some very dim source of light and that there were super sensitive eyes. They can't form an image. Um, and that's where we got to looking for light from the black smoker chimneys themselves. And there is light there. Fascinating. Now, one other dimension of your work that has always fascinated and, and delighted me is the way you intertwine art with your science. And it, it's been a long time since I read your book, uh, The Octopus Garden, which I just... I think I read it shortly after my dive, and I just loved getting that different reflection and perspective on that amazing experience I just had. But you're still doing art and science intertwined. Tell us, mm. tell us what's happening these days. Well, unfortunately, not so much. First, let's say I am not an artist. <laughs> and, you know, it was Bob Ballard who put me on to even thinking about this. He took a, He had an artist, didn't take the artist out to sea, but had an artist render a giant two worm. 
And I thought that was that was pretty cool to see a watercolor painting of a tubeworm. And then I also knew about Lewis and Clark and, you know, just the idea that explorers often have illustrators along with them. And I had the sense that this discovery of the hydrothermal vents was so great, such a natural history wonder that we should be documenting it, not just with our scientific reports, not just with photographs. Photographs are superb, especially nowadays, but that the human brain to hand to or whatever medium they're using was really interested in me and might be really important. So that got me started. And uh, I took an artist out to see with me, a watercolor artist for many, many cruises. I think she ended up doing, I don't know, maybe a, maybe almost 10 cruises with me over, over time. Did lots of different places around the world. We did a little art exhibit. You know, the tricky part there was that, or the sad part was that I'm not an entrepreneur in the art world. And I could not figure out how to break into the big museums and and really get this exhibition sold. It's unfortunate because it was, I think it's beautiful work with lots of good, good information. But where are those works now? The five big pieces are here at Duke at the Marine Lab. They were done with a grant from the National Science Foundation. And so we were, the university keeps the artwork. And then Karen Jacobson has all her original notebooks. She would have sketchbooks that she would do at sea. And she has those. Fabulous. Yeah. So I've done a couple of cruises with groups of artists on board. Um, and again, it's still the same problem of my not knowing the art world and not, not figuring out how to partner with a major museum. That's shame on me for not figuring that one out. <laughs> has there ever been an artist take a dive in, in Alvin? Karen certainly has. And these days, I think there have been others. Um, Lily Simonson is an artist who I believe has been in Alvin. Um, and they're working with the ROVs now as well. So there's much more artists at sea kind of programs that are that are going on through like the Schmidt Ocean Institute and, and others are taking artists out. That's fabulous. Yeah, yeah, it is fun. So you've made a hundred dives to the seafloor and spent in the years since countless hours and days exploring it with remote vehicles. But you personally have spent the better part of a month on the seafloor, I think, if you add all those dives up. And I don't need to tell you that one of the trends that's afoot today is the notions of mining the seafloor for some of the metals and, and other materials that are needed for life on the surface. What do you make of that? And what would you like listeners to understand about or think about when they hear that proposition? My take is a story that probably is in the, in the news media as well. And that is, wow, it's, there is some fabulous amounts of metals on the seafloor. We are a metal-hungry population, myself included. I have my cell phone. And so I can, I can imagine there will be a need for these metals, if not now and into the future. So there's this International Seabed Authority, which, has, which is regulating, it's, it's writing the mining code, the rules and regulations for mining in international waters of the, of the world's oceans. And um, it's a work in progress. The environmental management how we do this sustainably has come up and is, and is a, a topic of interest to every deep sea scientist. And a lot of the policies are being thought about by people who've never seen the seafloor or been to the seafloor uh, or don't make it their livelihood. And so there's some, some interesting misunderstandings, misconceptions about the seafloor, and maybe even about how much we do and do not know about the ecology of those seafloor environments and how sensitive they are. And I think it's too soon to say whether it's a a bad thing to mine the seafloor. I am open to seabed mining if the environmental management 
is well controlled. I think eventually we're going to have to mine something and see what happens and then be ready to stop it. The problem, you know, as you can imagine, once you start an industry, stopping it for an environmental reason can be really tough because money, in my perception is money drives everything. So I think, you know, it's, it behooves us to get this right now. And one of the, one of the things I've, that's motivated me to work in this arena from since 2006, when my colleagues scolded me for working with mining companies, is that I think it's inevitable. And, you know, 100 years from now, when people are, look back to see how we handled this initial approach to mining in the deep sea, how did we handle it? Did we do it right? And it's going to fall on, it falls on our shoulders. It's us now. And if we screw it up, if the environmental people who know about the deep sea don't speak up and don't do the research, join in, it's going to be shame on us, right? And I don't, I don't want to be the part of the scientific team that just had our heads in the sand because we thought it was a bad idea or didn't know how to do it. We've got to figure it out. And then I would just say the one thing where I am convinced it's not a good idea to mine are the hydrothermal vents, the active hydrothermal vents. And that's an arguable, I can see both sides of the argument, but I would, I think there's good reasons, scientific reasons and aesthetic reasons to leave those sites undamaged. Yeah. And to be clear, there now, you can tell me the number, a uh, hundred and some odd, if not more sites identified around all the different basins of the world's ocean, but they're, they are sort of pinpoint spots. They're, they're not big, expansive areas. Right. Maybe, they, maybe they're a mile long and a half mile wide. Not, not, not even that. So we, we have wrote a paper about why should we protect those active hydrothermal vents from mining? They are metal rich, they can be. And if you add them all up, the estimate of how many there are in the world, in the global ocean, they occupy less area than the size of the island of Manhattan. It may be abundant in terms of numbers, but like you say, they're pinpoints and it's, it is a rare environment. Precious pinpoints. Yeah. So is enough research and enough support for research being provided to develop the scientific and adequate scientific basis and understanding for those environmental assessments? And who's supporting it? Are the would-be are the would-be mining companies contributing to this effort or are they just they might take the posture that as long as you don't know very much, I can always argue you don't know enough to stop me. I think we're fortunate that unfortunately the US is not a signatory to the law of the sea and so we are not involved in the International Seabed Authority, except as observers. But the countries who are contractors or do sponsor contractors for the exploration contracts are very active. And so this is the EU countries. The EU programs uh, are, are super strong. China, Japan, Korea, Russia. I mean, the, the, the countries that are, have mining contracts are very active and many of them are super good. The, the European, I just happen to know the European situation best. And the scientists who are doing the environmental management in collaboration with the contractors, it's kind of a, a industry academic enterprise, are very good. The products, the, the science that they're doing is extraordinary um, and, and ambitious. It may not be adequate yet to tell us what's really going to happen when, when full industrial scale mining takes place, but the work is really pushing forward the, those frontiers. Yeah. It's a pretty exciting time for deep sea science. That's good to hear. Except in the U.S. <laughs> yes. Oh, well. Uh, on that bit of a downer note, let's switch to the fun of a lightning round. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks for indulging me. There. I know. Glad to appreciate it. 
Strangest thing you ever saw out the viewport on an Alvin dive? You know, I'm going to be simple, a black smoker. They are extraordinary. Maybe they're just now everybody knows about them, but just remarkable. Yeah. Strange. And again, just to be clear, they're called black smoker because the black water billowing out of them looks like smoke out of a chimney, but it's, but it's water. It's water. It's water. Yeah. Everything yeah. is water. Fluid. Fluids. Fluid. You've explored the entire planet pretty well. Favorite ocean? Oh, uh, uh, golly. Um, Atlantic and Pacific, Southern. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was three, but I'll give you that clever dodge. <laughs> Uh, I had put down favorite deep sea critter, but I think you've told us that the tube worms or is, what's your second favorite? Well, no, you know, I have to go with my shrimp because that's okay. loyalty to my PhD. You know, you there know, you research. go. That's my research animal. Fair, fair. Key destination on your bucket list. Boy, those Arctic vents. Yeah, I would like to see the Arctic vents or in the Southern Ocean, there are vents with those Kiwa crabs, the hairy crabs, the oh, yeti yeah, crabs. yeah, 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 the yeti right? crabs. I would love to see. I mean, I, I was actually on the cruise on the dive that discovered the first yeti crab. Sad story in, on my part because I wanted to do something else instead of collect it. Fortunately, we collected one. But I haven't seen the big clusters of them and the dancing yeti crabs. I would love to see those. So we, I think we have to say a little more about what a yeti crab oh. looks like here. <laughs> So about how big are they and what's, what, why are they called Yeti? What's odd about them? Yeah. The, so the first Yeti discovered, it looks like a gorilla. So it's a, but not the size of a gorilla. It's the size of a cell phone, of, a, of my mobile phone. But its arms are long and just covered with hair, just like a hairy guy. <laughs> yeah. It kind of looked like they have over-muscled arms all covered. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And they wave the, their claws above their head. There's, there's one species that does that and they aggregate and they wave their, wave their claws and they have their collecting bacteria or keeping their bacteria happy and eating the bacteria. Yeah. Are they all white? They, they are colors? all white. Yeah. 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 Abominable snowman Yeti. Crap. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's your happiest place of all? Gosh, you know, it used to be on a ship. And I haven't been out to sea in so long. It's hard. I think I would be really happy to go out to sea again. I hope you get another great cruise <laughs> and maybe another, maybe another dive. Yeah. You know, I'm going out on a cruise next week, but it's by telepresence. So I'm going to be sitting right here and doing it, <laughs> which will be fun. It'll be exciting. But I like the shipboard life. Yeah, I'm, I'm a dyed in the wool. There's a virtue to being there person. So, I mean... Telepresence to me, this is, you know, we, we can all understand this, I think, in a more vivid way, maybe now, uh, maybe coming out of a pandemic. Science in the deep sea by telepresence, which I can do sitting here at my computer, to me, is like a family reunion by Zoom. Mm. It's better than not having it, but it's not at all like hugging yeah, people yeah. and being with them and getting the, the richness of that immersion is just a value to me that I'm reluctant to give up. Well, the, the telepresence experiences that have worked best for me are there's the Inner Space Center that Bob Ballard set up at the University of Rhode Island. And a couple of times I did cruises through there and all the scientists, well, almost all the scientists were on shore in that room. And so we, we stood watches. We all lived in the same hotel or dormitory. And so it had much more of that social aspect, but you're right. It's the social aspect of scientific research of this, of this kind of research. Uh, those who go to see, it's a very special 
thing. And, and the people you sail with, they're friends for life. Whereas yeah. my telepresence friends, not really. Yeah. yeah. The word shipmate always yeah. has a deep yeah. meaning. Yeah. yeah. And you, my dear, are one of my favorite longtime shipmates, uh, as I've alluded to a couple times in our talk. You are the reason I can speak with any firsthand perspective on on Alvin and experiencing the deep sea floor and the black smokers myself. And I will be forever grateful for that. Uh-huh. I was so glad you came with us. It was fun. Great fun. And thank you so much for coming along on this exploration today. Absolutely. You're very welcome. What a, what a pleasure. <laughs> it's good to see you again. <laughs> Likewise, Cindy. Be well. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.